Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Hannah Fry, the UK's best-known mathematician. She's an associate professor at University College London and a household name and face, having presented numerous BBC documentaries, radio shows and podcasts, TED Talks and lectures. She applies maths to human behaviour and looks for patterns in places you wouldn't expect to find them. As a result of her work, we are better equipped to grapple with social challenges, from transport to urban crime, riots and terrorism, and even dating, sex and marriage. In fact, she may even be able to see the future, given two years ago she used maths to predict the effects of a global pandemic. Hannah, welcome to my digital studio. In 2018, you released a documentary called Contagion, It aired in the UK that year and has recently come to Australia through SBS On Demand. In that film, you pretty much predicted the situation we are now in. How uncanny does it feel to be living through something you've simulated as an experiment? Well, I wouldn't say it's a nice experience. Uncanny really is the word. I'd say almost eerie because, I mean, I think that we all knew that something like this was coming. You know, this this isn't a surprise. All of the experts have been talking about the risk of a pandemic for years. And in fact, actually in 2017, when we made that programme, a pandemic was number one on the list of the UK government's risk register. So pandemics were were always a risk. What's really eerie about the programme, which was essentially a big citizen science experiment in which we simulated a pandemic pandemic spreading across the UK, an epidemic spreading across the UK, and see what that would look like. What was really eerie was that the way we set it up in the programme was that I was patient zero, and we picked a town in the south of England, we picked Hazelmere, uh, this very small town, and that ended up being the very first place that there was domestic transmission in the UK. So eerie experience. But I think even still, even still, having been involved in that project, I think that this has ended up being far more hard hitting in terms of the impact that it's having on the world is far greater than even I think many of the experts were predicting. 
Given a pandemic was the number one risk, how do you see the preparedness of the UK and indeed the world to meet this challenge? It seems from what you're saying that there was forewarning and Mm. a window for people to be better prepared, not necessarily for this pandemic, but for a general pandemic problem in the future. Mm. Well, I think it's not a coincidence that the countries who shut this down very quickly, who took very decisive actions, are the ones who have had other epidemics in recent memory. You know, South Korea, for instance, very badly hit, you know, this century with uncontrolled spread of disease. I think that they were very swift to react. And I think that while the UK, we had a pandemic preparedness plan, we've been you know, working on uh, pandemic preparedness for the last decade. And there are certainly a, a number of very, very good people, you know, real experts who have, have spent their entire working lives in recent years preparing for something like this. You know, it's, it's not like this came as out of nowhere and nobody had been doing anything on it. But I also think that it's very easy to see these risks as though they're never really going to hit, you know, as to to not take them seriously. So I think that there inevitably could have could have been much more that was done. I think, you know, in particular, funding the, the pandemic preparedness plan in terms of keeping stockpiles of personal protective equipment up, all of that kind of thing. I think that they knew the risk was there, but I think perhaps it was very easy to let other things take their immediate attention when it came to planning for, for the future. And given how good your predictive work has been, I mean, remarkable parallels between your predictions and real life. What do you think will happen for the rest of 2020 and 2021? If you had to make a bet, is life going back to normal (laughs) or is life change forever? Well, I mean, I think some of this is a bit fluky, right? I can't claim to have a crystal ball that lets me see into the future. But I do also think, though, that it's really the mathematical modelling that that gives you that opportunity to to peer forwards and maybe not tell you what's going to happen, but allow you to just get a sense of what's likely. So my sense right now, you know, looking particularly at the mathematical models that that are scrolling forwards, I think that this isn't something that is going to go away. I think that this is something that we're going to have to learn to live with, really, until we get a, a vaccine. I think this is this is something that is just too contagious to be able to shut it down. But I also think that this current situation of total lockdown that certainly in the UK we're in and other parts of the world, I think that's a very blunt instrument. It's not a very sophisticated tool to, to minimise the spread of this pandemic. And I think that there are, the mathematical modelling really shows that there are ways that you can you can lock down in a cleverer more strategic way so you know for instance trying to keep as many people working from home as possible and in doing that allowing you just to see a few friends and family here and there or having much more targeted lockdowns where you focus in on a particular geographic region you know for instance it's certainly in the UK if there's an epidemic if, if things the numbers start peaking up in Leeds say there's no reason why Brighton should shut down completely Completely. So I think that we're going to have this, it's going to be ongoing for a really long time, but I think that we're going to get better at slowing the spread without using just the one blunt instrument of shut everything down. So your prediction would be that more fine grained set of restrictions depending on very locally based data about spikes and issues. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. I think normality, as it were, we're not going to return to normality for some time yet. And when you watch the TV or look online to get the news about what's happening with the pandemic, 
Do you notice a gender gap in the scientific advisors we're hearing from? <laughs> there's certainly, there's, there is that old, particularly popular news article, which is uh, there's the faces of the leaders of countries who, who have managed to minimise the number of cases. It's like, what do you notice about these leaders? Every single one of them is, is, is female. I have noticed, actually, in terms of certainly the UK, the, the people that we're hearing from the UK, I'm noticing a real lack of female voices, actually, even from the scientists, uh, as well as the political leaders. And I wonder about that a bit, because it's not the case that there aren't any women working on this response, particularly in the scientific advice side, which is the side that I know a lot more. There are a number of really brilliant, really brilliant women who are working on this. So in fact, actually, possibly shouldn't tell you this, but uh, we're doing this program for the BBC at the moment. And I was determined. I was like, I know that there are these female experts. I, I mean, I know them. I want to put some female faces on this because the public thinks that it's just completely this wall of men who are doing this. And talking to these female experts, trying to persuade them to get on the show. I mean, the number of people that we've tried, that we've contacted to try and get them to talk in public and just not been able to persuade them. And I can't help but think that the public reaction to what the scientists are saying is so fierce and so, I don't know, spiteful and full of just anger. There's one mathematician or a couple actually in particular in, in the UK, Neil Ferguson, who is the sort of famous one, who's now getting hit pieces by I mean, the, the press, talking about his love life, on the, the splashing it on the front pages of newspapers, right? He's a mathematician, for goodness sake. <laughs> Another guy, Graham Medley, who was on the front page of the Times, you know, his quotes, I think personally being taken very unfairly. And the, the emails these people are receiving, and I, I just think it's it's really not a surprise that the women who we all know get this stuff far worse are just taking a bit more of a back seat and I think there's something there's a real shame about that actually that we're being so angry about this that we're that we're stopping the women coming forward and being more vocal yeah that is a certainly a depressing circle that mm. we do know that women get more abuse online um, that's clearly been proven and so that's becoming an impediment for hearing women's voices during even a crisis like this mm. though i suppose a curmudgeon would say well you know maths is maths and does it really matter who's crunching the numbers and presenting it given they're always going to add up to be the same I don't think they do always add up to be the same. I think that there are choices that you can make as you go along. And I think that it's incredibly important that those choices are made by people with a wide range of life experiences as possible to that curmudgeon. <laughs> That's just not how it works. That's just not how it works. You can choose to optimise different things, right? So, for example, you can choose that the number one thing, the number one thing that you're trying to optimise is to stay below critical care capacity, right? You can say, I don't care what happens as long as we don't go over that line. Or you can say, I want as few cases as possible, I don't care what happens. I just want as few cases as possible. And those are two approaches to the very same problem that give you completely different answers. I'm not even necessarily saying that one of those is right and one of those is wrong, but I'm saying that both of those approaches need to be part of the conversation. And I just think that different kinds of people will come at these problems from different perspectives and offer different potential solutions or different potential strategies to get us out of this. 
I want to take you now to where it all began, to talk to you about where you found your passion for maths. Uh, You were born in 1984 and grew up in Harlow, which is on the outskirts of London. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and what made you think maths is my thing? I've got this image of your family around the dinner table, obsessively going through the times tables. Was it like that? I mean, a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'm glad my vision is a little bit right. There was this tape, right, that just is the most boring tape ever. All it was was someone reciting the times tables. And every time we got in the car, my mum would put on this tape. And me and my two sisters just be like, oh, God, not again. But sort of a bit, even though I should tell you that my mental arithmetic skills are absolutely appalling. So it didn't really work that well. <laughs> but I think that, so both my mum and dad left school when they were quite young. Neither of them, you know, went on to university and nothing like that, even even sort of A-levels or the equivalent, um, neither of them um, really had. So I think that both of them really thought that education was the way to get us as far ahead as we could possibly be. I mean, we're, despite my put-on posh accent, which I've had to change since working at Radio 4, um, I think, um, you know, we're, very, we're a really working-class family. And I think, you know, alongside that, my mum was very much, she was really keen on us being good at maths or liking maths as much as possible. And I think that I just liked the fact that it makes you stand out. I think that there's a lot of talk about, you know, women in maths, it being an uphill battle if you're a woman in maths. And I think that that's true. I mean, I'm sure that we'll, you can touch on that stuff shortly. But but I also think that in a way, if you are a woman in maths, it's sort of a superpower because I sort of think that you it really makes you stand out and you can really... I always felt as though being a girl into maths sort of made me kind of special, if that makes any sense, because it's always a surprise. Whenever you tell people, it's always a surprise. And at that, even as a, as a teenager, you really latch onto that. There's something really nice that you can say something about yourself that people always react with surprise to. And so that's a very positive reaction based on gender. When would have been the first time that you hit a negative reaction based on gender or sort of harumph that mm, girls don't do maths girls are good at reading they're not good at maths or any of those (laughs) kinds of things so I think I was probably insulated from a lot of it because I went to an all-girls school although I wouldn't necessarily say that was the best (laughs) the best experience or the best way to to deal with insulating people from misogyny is just to keep them away from men I don't think I'd send my own girls to um, to all-girls school but nonetheless I think it meant that although I knew vaguely that people thought that maths wasn't a girl's thing in terms of uh, on an individual level I didn't have to deal with much of it until I was about 16 there was one point in particular where I went on this trip a school trip an engineering focused school trip where we went off to Denmark and there were all of these people from loads of different countries in Europe and we all came together to do this engineering project and we were essentially making a wind turbine in a group of four with uh, a Danish instructor who was there to help us of course I, there were hardly any girls on this trip and I was the only girl in this in this group of four and I was really excited I had very little experience of engineering but like the other boys there I mean we were all 16 but I was really excited to learn And the instructor just wouldn't let me get involved, basically. 
and uh, set the boys up doing soldering and, you know, all construction. And there was one point during that trip where he actually said, OK, well, why don't you take notes about what the guys are doing? Because we have to give a report at the end. So you can be like the secretary of, uh, of this group. And I think that was the first time when I was really confronted with it face to face. But I just ha- didn't know how to react to it. I think now I, I know exactly how I'd react to it. But at the time, I just sort of... I mean, I was stunned and upset and angry that I wasn't allowed to be involved, but I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I just kind of got on with it. And did any of that rear its head again when you were at university and the environment would have been quite a male-dominated one given the study of maths? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Loads and loads. (laughs) I think it is definitely getting a lot better as time goes on, but I think when I went to university in the early noughties, there's still just an array of older professors who just didn't quite see women with the same level of respect as they saw um, the men. There's one professor in particular who ended up being my supervisor for when I did my postdoc. And he just never got on with women. He just didn't he just didn't respect them at all. There was one point in particular where I remember I ended up being on an interview panel interviewing for a new position with him, sat alongside him. And I was more than qualified to be on this interview panel instantly. It was for my old job. I was much more senior than the role. I had experience in the team. It it made perfect sense that I was on this interview panel. And he waited, there were three of us on the panel. He waited until the other person, the other professor was out of the room and then turned to me and said, so the faculty have got these new rules that say that there has to be at least one woman on the panel. And the professor that I wanted wasn't available. So that's why you're here. Oh. It's just, you know, a way to undermine you. <laughs> it was also just not, I mean, it's just nonsense. But I think that the the biggest things that the number of times where someone actively says something that really puts you down or where someone actively excludes you from something, I would say it's, you know, I don't have a really, really long list of stuff. But I, but I think that the way that it manifests itself is a much lower level, and it's more the things that you are that you don't get rather than necessarily the things that you do. So, for instance, there's a, a colleague and I who started at the same time. He was obviously a guy, and uh, both of us, I would say, were very similar levels of ability. Both of us, you know, knew our stuff. But the difference was that because he was a guy and was into cricket and football. And just sort of, you know, laddie bants. <laughs> he just created this relationship with the senior professors in a way that I just wasn't able to. And as a result, he would get, you know, if there was a, you know, an event, like a networking event, he would always be the one talking to the professors in a just much more jovial, friendly way. And so it just meant that he had this mentorship that the girls just weren't getting. And I think that that's really the way that it that it manifests itself rather than necessarily, you know, as I, I'm sure it used to be, as just lots of actual instance of, of where you can point at it and say you're clearly being sexist. You got your way through all of that and you've taken your maths to the community and particularly taken it to people through being a TV presenter. And you've talked about how you're aware that your lifespan, taking your maths onto television, might be shorter than male experts. I've had Mary Beard, the renowned historian, on this podcast, and she told me that critics said she was, quote unquote, too ugly for TV as a middle-aged, normal-looking woman. 
How much do you think the industry puts pressure on women experts to look a certain way? And are women like Mary changing it or is she kind of a one-off and there's still this expectation that you've got to look kind of pretty even if you're there to be talking about maths? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's really hard. I mean, I think Mary Beard is an icon. (laughs) I mean, she's a one-off in so many ways and I think that she's a genuine trailblazer. It's really hard to know because you don't get to live your life several times over and see whether the slight changes that happen really are having the impact that you expect or whether it's just, you know, I I have hunches about certain things that have happened along the way. But I guess, you know, lives are lived forward and only understood backwards, right? But I do think I definitely noticed that the attitude towards me changed as soon as I got pregnant with my first child. And actually, I just got dropped, basically. I just got dropped. From television? Yeah, completely. The sort of conversations that happened around it at the time were, oh, we just want to give you some space and, you know, we don't want to pressure you and stuff. But I also felt that that I could have made that decision for myself rather than someone make that decision on my behalf. And I think that I had to, after my first baby, I had to go back super early I mean, after eight weeks, I was back filming after eight weeks, just to demonstrate, like, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> I don't want to just disappear off the radar just because I've just because I've had a had a child. But I also think that the public attitude towards you really changes as you get older. And particularly, there's a big difference now that I'm a mum of two and I just look older, right? And I've just, I've had two kids, so I've just, my, like, my body shape has changed, right? Like, really simple stuff. But the, the public attitude towards me now, at this stage, to just even four years ago, so hardly any time at all before I had any children, you just really notice the comments that you get are completely different and in some ways it's nice I think people are taking me more seriously now than they were before but I would say that people are less interested in watching you. Ah interesting so I'm going to have to use some gender stereotype words here to make sure I'm getting to the concept but before you had kids you think there was interest in you as the kind of good-looking young woman and wow she can do maths Whereas now it's a different, yes, she's she's a bit older, she's a mum, so there's less surprise that you've got a career but a little bit less frisson around it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever, I, I've never tried to sort of, if you grow up as a ginger girl in Harlow, <laughs> you, you <laughs> certainly don't have an attitude about what you look like, believe me. <laughs> so I've never like traded on, on what I look like. But I do think that you're right. I think it's that surprise. You know, when you are young, and you know, you dress in a certain way, and you just, you surprise people that you are a professional mathematician. There's just that disconnect between those two ideas, the two things that smash together you don't expect that people find intriguing. And I think that when you replace that sort of young girl with, I'm going to be a bit, <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but like a dowdy mum of two, it's just like, well, it's just not as interesting, right? And it's like, I'm the same person. I was never trying to sell myself as that before. And I'm not trying to sell myself as a dowdy mum of two now. Like the whole time, all I've ever been interested in is the the ideas, and yet you just notice that you can't do that because inevitably the the world sees you as what you're saying, but wrapped up in a package, and you just can't. There's nothing you can do. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This feels like the right moment to be talking about love, sex and marriage. So let's do that. <laughs> your first book and a TED talk that you did, which has been viewed over 5 million times, was called The Mathematics of Love and applied statistical and data scientific models to dating, sex and marriage. You recommend people use an algorithm for dating and you even talk us through an equation that can predict how likely a couple is to divorce. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a bit tongue in cheek, (laughs) but really, but really, I mean, I do, I do stand by it. The thing is, is that I, I think the point about this, it kind of goes along with what we were saying already. I think the point about this, when you take two things that feel like they're really far apart from one another and smash them together, I think that's where things become really intriguing. And the point about doing loads of stuff with maths and love wasn't so much that (laughs) it it was, I guess I was trying to prove the point that you can take maths and apply it to anything. And so I deliberately took the thing that's hardest of all and showed that even in that situation, there's an awful lot that maths can say. There's some things that you can't touch, right? Like when you meet someone and you know you really like them and that sort of that spark of excitement that you feel, you can't touch that with maths. But there are still loads of things in our love life that that do have these very clear defined patterns to them. So, you know, for instance, how many people you date before you settle down. That's a very sort of numerical thing. But also, as you said, that's my favorite one, actually, is the arguments between couples in long term relationships, because actually they they do follow a pattern. And it's a pattern that you can use mathematics to describe and to analyze and to tell you things about yourself that you didn't necessarily realize. It's fascinating. (laughs) A fascinating way to look at it all. You'll have to do an update, which will be around couples and lockdown and whether that is taking them through your predicted mathematical stages more quickly. Now, in the UK, since 1825, there have been Royal Institution Christmas lectures. In 2019, you became the first female mathematician to give the lectures. For our Australian audience and any Brits who didn't grow up watching these lectures, can you explain to them what that series is about and why it's so unusual for a woman to give them? The idea back in the 1820s, the Royal Institution was a scientific institution and they wanted to educate local kids, basically. So they started creating these lectures this every single year. They would invite loads of local kids in bums on seats, fill the benches. And I'm pretty sure at the time they would just bore the hell out of them three hours. <laughs> um, but as time has gone on, the idea behind this is that it's 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 scientific lectures, 
but where you are tailoring it very specifically to kids. So lots of really attention grabbing stuff, lots of excitement and explosions and kind of thrilling stories. And yeah, as you say, they've been going on for, for hundreds of years. And every year, the Royal Institution appoint a lecturer. So there have been all kinds of incredible people. So Attenborough has done them. Some of my heroes, uh, Zeman for, has done them. Faraday's, you know, was um, the founder and has done them many times. But the first female lecturer, the first person who was uh, appointed to do these lectures who was female, wasn't until really late. I can't remember the exact year, but it's like the 1980s or something. I mean, so they had like a hundred and however many years uh, without a single woman. I think they've still, I think I was like the fifth woman, maybe. But I mean, it's uh, it's really only since 2010 that they've been like, yeah, maybe we should... <laughs> Maybe we should regularly have females as well. A real career goal. And do you get the sense, you know, in your own interactions with kids that that role modelling of seeing a woman, seeing a younger woman talk to them about maths, about science, make it interesting, that that not only makes a general difference to them thinking science could be cool, but makes a specific difference to the girls? So I certainly get lots of letters that say say something to that effect. I know it would have made a difference to me. I know it would have made a difference to me. It's just, you can't be what you don't see. And I think that unless you plant that idea in people's minds that they really can do whatever they want, you really can do whatever you want. I think it makes such an enormous difference. But I also think for me, as well as having someone visible, someone publicly visible doing this kind of job, I think the things that make a real difference is when girls get to spend time with and see other girls who are just ahead of them. Not the sort of high-flying superstars, right? The, the CEOs and like the, the millionaires and the incredibly successful women. I think it's not just that. It's also seeing women who are relatable. So yeah, I think it's as much about trying to encourage other girls coming through, other female science communicators who are a bit younger than me, and uh, trying to help them up the ladder as well. I think all of that stuff is really important. And when you spoke in this lecture series, one of the topics you discussed was a very big challenge that we face today, the ethics of maths, and particularly mm. the way algorithms have infiltrated every aspect of our lives to gather and exploit our personal data. Why is that such a problem? And do you think it's a gendered problem? I think that really big changes have happened over the last decade, and they're changes that are driven by these mathematical algorithms. The thing is, is that you you can't see them. They're invisible. And so it's really easy to turn a blind eye, perhaps, to the impact that they're having. I always look at sort of drones, right? So drones came along. There were lots of drones everywhere and people flying drones in the park. And everyone was like, hang on a second, I don't like this. And then the drones were sort of shut down and now you've got to get licenses and blah, blah, blah. I think if you had been able to see what mathematical algorithms were doing and to be able to see how much they were changing our society, then I think that people would be just wouldn't have stood for it in quite the same way. Because these things, it's not just like Facebook serving you adverts. This is stuff that's now in our in policing, it's in um, our judicial systems, it's in healthcare, it's in uh, education, it's in every possible aspect of our modern lives. There are decisions that are being made by mathematical algorithms, and those decisions are not necessarily being made in the fairest way. There's certainly a few yeah. very famous examples of where these algorithms have essentially discriminated against particular people. One particularly famous example is this. There are algorithms that filter through people's CVs. And what they try and do is they try and find people 
who they expect to succeed at the company and they base that decision on people who have already succeeded in the company. And of course, people who have succeeded in the company so far are generally men. So the algorithm is essentially trained to try and find men. <laughs> so there are lots of things like this. But it's, I mean, it's, there's, there's racial discrimination, there's sort of discrimination on the basis of socioeconomics, all of these different kinds of things. I'm not necessarily saying that all mathematical algorithms are bad, incidentally, and it's a very big topic, just that we should probably be a little bit more conscious of quite how much power we're ceding. I've had Hillary Clinton on this podcast. She came to King's College and we recorded a session with her where she talked about, amongst other things, the use of deep fakes, meaning videos of people that really look genuine, but they've been artificially created. So the person appears to be saying something that they've actually never said. You made a deep fake from someone in the audience during one of your lectures can you tell us what kind of response you got to that and what do we need to do if we sort of didn't see the algorithms coming at us, as you've just described? What do we need to do as members of the public to be ready for this era when what we could be seeing online, you know, looks just 100% right, but it's actually a deep fake? Yeah, so the deep fake that we made, I mean, deep fakes, they're essentially just fancy maths, right? The, the one that we did in the show, there's a girl in the audience, we manipulated her face to get her to give all of her pocket money to her sister and to promise that she'll eat broccoli for the rest of the time. It was all sort of very funny and like <laughs> tongue in cheek and very playful. But I do think as I as Hillary Clinton talks about a lot, I do think that there's a very serious concern I think these things have the potential to undermine our democracies. I mean, I think as you can say it as bluntly as that. I think it, it, it's not so much that it, they'll be used to create fake content. It's that the existence of deep fakes can make you question what's real. And it's about whether you can start denying whether real videos are, are, are fake or not. I think that's where the real problem is. Yeah, not so much creating fake content, but just dismissing real content and, and pretending that it's fake when it's not. And I think if you start questioning videos, you have to really question everything. But I think that that's also where the real answer of this lies. I think actually people can be much more scientific about the information that they consume. I think if people are sceptical about everything, actually, I think that's really positive. I think if people, I think people need to just ask more questions and just not accept stuff at face value quite as much as they perhaps naturally do. But I think that that's true, not just with videos, I think that's with written content. And I think that's true with, with pictures too. There is a strange and dangerous future that lies ahead of us, I think, in terms of the spread of information and misinformation. And another thread of that is you've talked about tech companies and you've used these words. We've got all these tech companies filled with very young, very inexperienced, often white boys who have lived in maths departments and computer science departments. They've never been asked to consider how other people's perspectives of life might be different to theirs. And ultimately, these are the people who are designing the future for all of us. What can we do about that? You've even suggested that they take an equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath like doctors. Is that part of the solution as we're looking at this future yeah. that's being designed by such a subset of humanity? 
Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was clearly in quite a grumpy mood when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that I think there's something there, though, which is that I do think that people really struggle to think of things outside of their own perspective. If I can trivialise this slightly for a moment, I, you know, going back to the love stuff, there was one occasion when I went in to go and I did an interview about it with some BBC journalist. And off mic, this BBC journalist, she said that she didn't think that a guy would ever have come up with the idea to do math and love. And I don't necessarily agree with her. At the time, I was like, I don't just know. But I think over time, I've started to understand what she meant, which is that I think that your perspective is just hard coded into the stuff that you create. And maybe it's true, maybe it isn't true in that particular example. But, but you know, I think we see this everywhere, right? Like, you know, nude coloured plasters or plasters being the, only nude if you've got one particular skin tone or like tights, you know, for instance, nude tights, right? It's, it's really hard to see outside of your own perspective. And so I think that when you go into these tech companies and you see, you look around you and there is one type of person, really, maybe a few people here and there who buck the trend. But generally speaking, you're getting very young white men who have been to college and then go straight into these tech companies. And these tech companies, incidentally, you know, they feed you, they do your laundry for you. There's a dentist there. You know, you don't even have to buy your own clothes because they give you free t-shirts, right? Like these are, these are very young men who just, you know, who've never had to take care of themselves really. And the company is now taking care of the companies. It's like acting like their mother. And I think that's all fine. But I think the problem is, is that if you've got one carbon copy type of individual who doesn't have that sort of extensive life experience of stepping outside of themselves and getting on with it in the real world, I just think that you're only going to end up with one perspective in the work that you create. And I just think I think Hippocratic Oath is part of it, promising not to do any harm. But I but I really, really, really strongly believe that diversity isn't just box ticking. I think you get better outputs if you include a wider range of perspectives. Absolutely. And in terms of the wider range of perspectives, one thing that really matters is making sure that people can balance work and family life. You've talked about having two young children, and I'm sure that many women listening to this would be thinking, how does she juggle an academic career, research, teaching students with filming BBC documentaries, recording talks and podcasts and writing books. How's that all possible? <laughs> okay, so the truth is, the real truth of it is the only way I can do it is because I have a very traditional 1950s relationship with my husband. Just the roles are completely reversed. So he is a stay-at-home dad. I don't have to worry about cooking. I don't have to do my laundry. I don't have to worry about food shopping or remembering, you know, fancy dress for the kids on book day. You know, I don't have to do any of that stuff. And I think the thing is, is that I can do all of that work because I'm not doing unpaid work, if that makes any sense. And I I think that that is that remains one of the biggest problems, which is that it's just not physically possible. It's just not physically possible to do everything. If you want to have that family life and to have a career, you have to have an absolutely incredible amount of help. Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of still are living in that that world of the 1950s. It's just, 
well, maybe not quite the 1950s. I think that that's something that a lot of people don't say, right? I think all of the successful women I know who have families, the really successful women I know, are either in the same position as me, where their husband is a stay-at-home father, or they have unimaginable amounts of paid help. You know, I know I know one incredibly successful woman who has two nannies, two nannies, and that's really the only way that, that she can cope. I think it means that uh, there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast who are very intrigued by your husband. We might have to get him on for an episode. <laughs> I think it is really important, though, that we do talk about families in which roles have been reversed like that because it's not spoken about enough. Mm. Uh, But, Hannah, how are you finding lockdown? Are you going okay? And as the world hopefully returns to something that looks like normal or at least the new normal, what's next for Hannah Fry? Oh, all sorts of things on the road. I'm actually doing lots and lots of maths at the moment, working with the data from that program, that pandemic program that we did at Contagion a couple of years ago, because the data on that actually is really feeding into the the government models. So there's lots of that stuff going on. Yeah, lots of little projects on the horizon. We'll see. We'll see. And a new book, I think. I think it's time for a new book. <laughs> okay. Well, we're all reading lots, so time for a new book. We'll have. A... <laughs> oh, I'm not that fast. It takes me too long. <laughs> <laughs> not that fast. Not with all the maths. I'm going to come now to our concluding questions. I always ask my guests to respond to a fact, and the fact for you is: despite more women now going to university than men, data gathered by science, technology, engineering, and maths women in 2017-18 revealed that just 37% of maths students were women. Over three years, up to 2017-18. The number of female mathematical science graduates had dipped slightly, and that was the only, you know, science, technology, engineering, math subject to see a decrease. What's your reaction? Well, I think these numbers do fluctuate generally, so I'm not too concerned about a slight dip um, over a number of years. I also think that it's very easy to think that unless you get 50-50, then you failed somehow. But personally, I probably don't think that that's necessarily true. I think I would like to be in a world where it may not be that it's 50-50 men and women. It may be that actually, you know, 40% is the right number or or, or 45% is the right number. But I just want to get to a point where we're in a world where people feel like they have the freedom of choice, where they feel like They can do maths if they want to, rather than something about society thinking they're not able to be the thing that's holding them back. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? I've I've, uh, avoided ever telling this story because I think it might get me in trouble, but whatever. (laughs) Okay, so I was doing a, I just had my baby, my first baby. So she was about four months old. It was that time when I, you know, wanted to get back, get back to TV as quickly as possible to prove that I wasn't just disappearing because I had a child. So I was doing uh, my first ever live program, uh, really nervous, right? This big, big, big program, um, big budget thing. And uh, I was incredibly nervous. And I turned up on set and everyone was there already. And it's this really intimidating situation. Everyone's men, obviously, of course, because I'm the token female. And to try and calm my nerves, my co-host, who I'd never met before, I'd like spoken to him on the phone just so that I could get to know him or whatever, to ease my nerves slightly when I arrived. 
Anyway, we got there. We're having this tour around. During the phone calls, actually, I should add, it turned out that he'd actually grown up not very far away from me, only a few miles away. So during the tour of the set with the big cheese commissioner, the like the big cheese executive producer, the co-host, the director, it's just like this massively intimidating situation to try and just chit chat. I turned to the commissioner. I said, oh, it turns out me and the co-presenter actually grew up really close to each other. And uh, the co-presenter said, oh, yeah, yeah, we used to knock about. And I was like, whatever. Ha ha. At which point he grabbed my arm. Right. And was like, I'll just turn around. So because I'm trusting, I turned around. And as my back was turned, there's literally like seven men. As my back was turned, the co-presenter turned to the commissioner and said, oh, yeah, now I recognize her. Oh, it's just like total humiliation in this incredibly intimidating environment and just undermining who you are. You know, the the thing is as well, it's like, I'm not there. And even if I had been, it would have been inappropriate. But I'm not there as like this, you know, eye candy for everybody. I'm there as I'm a professional mathematician, right? I'm there like with my expertise and my ability to communicate with the public. I'm not there for your amusement. It's just, yeah, I think that was. And did anybody say anything? <laughs> nope. 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 I'm glad my next question is this one. If you had all of the power in the world for a day, what's the one thing that you would make better for women? You can only pick one. I think that so many women, especially once they get to the same age as me and, you know, potentially have families set up home and in a domestic situation, I think that the load of domestic work that is placed on women, the sort of unseen and invisible load of domestic work that's placed on women is just really damaging. It's really deeply damaging. And I think part of that is because it's sort of automatically placed on women because I think that we were trained from a very, very young age how to cook, how to clean, how to do laundry, um, how to make a home, how to make a house a home, right? And men just, I don't think they're trained in the same way. It's just not something that is part of um, a young man's upbringing in the same way as it is for a woman's. So then when you get to the point where you're adults and you're in a partnership and one person knows how to do it and the other person just doesn't even see it, I think there's incredible amounts of conflict. And I think that the load that gets placed on women's shoulders as a result of that then has an inevitable knock-on impact on, you know, on their careers and therefore on the number of women that we see visibly succeeding. So I think the one thing that I would change is a fairer split of domestic labour. I like it. (laughs) Virginia Woolf says, neither of us knows what the public will think. There's no doubt in my mind that I have found out how to begin at 40 to say something in my own voice. And that interests me so that I feel I can go ahead without praise. Hannah Fry Mm. says... I'm not there yet. I'm getting there. (laughs) It's getting easier as I'm getting older. I'll tell you that. I think Virginia would like to hear that answer. Hannah, (laughs) thank you for such a fascinating conversation. That's been terrific. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. 
If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.